0: Hello and welcome back to Liminal Space. I'm your host Claire and this is me recording the second episode. Yes, call it consistency, call it content, <laughs> my content creator era for real. Okay, jokes, but welcome for real. Weeks has passed since we last talked and obviously, obviously a lot of things have has happened since then. Well, Namely, first of all, I said obviously that way because I just finished the Harry Potter trilogy, not not trilogy, series, all the movies, finally. Like I finally sat down and watched like all of them. Well, not at once, but so I watched the first two movies, like the first movie years ago when I was young, because I've read the books up to book three and then I just never continued and I finished the first movie like years ago. And then when I hopped on a plane from home here to London, I realized, I, I don't know why this this thought occurred to me. I was like, I'm going to London and I still haven't watched all the Harry Potter movies. Like for some reason, there was a thought that um, <laughs> that was on my brain. So on the plane, I decided, you know what, this is the time. I have hours and this eight-hour flight two times. I'm, I'm just gonna I'm gonna try and watch the Harry Potter movies. So I think I watched m- movie number two, three, and four on the plane. And I just kept continuing like over the course of the first week that I got here. But then I stopped when I got to Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, which is the la- the third to the last movie. And so yesterday i binge watched uh, the last two okay that makes no sense but point is i finally finished all the movies and first of all let me just say that like harry potter is probably the strongest form of soft power that the uk has in terms of culture like that's all that they have going on right harry potter and love island (laughs) oh my god don't get mad at me that was a joke But Harry Potter, okay, slaps. I can't believe I've never seen all the movies. Like, it's such a big part of a lot of people's childhoods. Like, people say, oh, I grew up watching the Harry Potter movies and, like, immersing myself in that cinematic universe. And it was only up till yesterday, well, at the time that I'm recording this, that I actually went and saw all of the movies or finished them. So, you know, maybe I'm missing out on a huge cultural moment but whatever now i'm up to speed with the harry potter discourse so you know cute movies i'm a slytherin if anyone's wondering i took the quiz like years ago and i'm also playing the ps game harry potter wizarding world not me confessing this in public it's okay, I'm coming out, I'm coming out, I'm coming out with this embarrassing news, but it's actually really fun. So we get to like tour around the campus and like do a bunch of quests. And since I'm in Slytherin, the common room is designed so well in the game. Like it's underground. So you have like fishes and like, it just looks like a fancy hotel. Great great house to be put in okay I will be quiet I will I will stop the Harry Potter discourse now in case I'm coming off as a nerd but that's what it is I've been it is my current um time filler shall I say well amongst many others so yeah that is me finally finishing those series and knowing what's up what's good games I kind of want to talk about the differences between PC games and mobile games, but namely why mobile games are designed in a way that makes them extremely addictive. So, by mobile games, you know, games that you download on the App Store and the Google Play Store, or whatever, and you play on your iPad or on your phone. And also, I will be confessing that last year, for a big chunk of my time, so like a couple of months, I was absolutely addicted to Heyday that yes the farm game from like 2014 whatever i was playing that for a very long time and not gonna lie i was raking in my, my farm looks good but i was spending too much time with that game i was playing for hours it's really fun though and addictive and this is a common thread that i see running with a lot of mobile games that what i'm about to talk to talk about right now so the thing with mobile games is the way they're structured is they incentivize you to keep coming back for more as in the way in which you progress in the game or level up or upgrade your your farm your home your village your clan I also played clash of clans but that was when I was like 10 it doesn't count um is they make you come back and reap the rewards from what you did hours ago does that make sense so you come back And that's the only way you progress. So the more time you spend, the more rewards you collect and the faster you progress. So that makes it really addictive, right? Obviously. Stop saying obviously. I'm I'm so Harry Potter pilled. Anyways, it's the thing with mobile games. And I feel with a lot of things on our mobile phones or mobile devices, they're just really structured to be addictive like even with social media everything that we check on our phones make us want to come back to it more and spend more of our time and attention on it whereas i'd say with like pc or ps games there's a lot of like you know with the with the fighting games and the and the call of duties and stuff i have no comments i have no experience with that but with the like storyline games where you like the sims like you build a storyline or um Actually, maybe not The Sims. It's not it's not really a good example. But, you know, those games that like have a storyline and once you finish it, then you finish the story. That's much less addictive, I would argue, because it's not structured in a way that in order to progress faster, you have to keep coming back. Like there's no time limit, like, you know, come back to harvest your crops or come back to um, see your finished construction or whatever. So yeah, just a little observation about games and how they're different when we play it on mobile and on our computers. Gamer discourse. Also, my favorite gaming app is this app called Play-Doh. It's not really a gaming app. It's basically a sort of social media slash games app where it's a bunch of mini games in an app and you can add your friends and play with them or you can play with other people around the world and there's always like about thirty-four thousand people online at all times so you really will not run out of people to play with and it's really really fun i've (laughs) i've been on that app for years so embarrassing that took up a lot of my time in the pandemic and they have games like uno or monopoly but they call it different things so like uno is like is called Ocho, or like Monopoly is called Bankroll, and a bunch of other alternatives. It's so fun. It's so fun. And I'm sure a lot of a lot of you guys know what I'm talking about, because I play on that app with a lot of my friends. So friends, you guys know what I'm talking about. Enough with the gaming discourse. I I um, am guilty of being a fan of a lot of games, uh, currently the Harry Potter game. But All good, all good. We move. And in terms of other stuff that's been going on, I, for the past two weeks, have been to two concerts. I don't usually go to like heaps of concerts at once, but I got a Spotify notification about like around December, I think. And you know how Spotify notifies you when your artists, like your favorite artists or artists that you listen to a lot are doing a show near you. And they tell you and so you can get tickets through spotify well it redirects you to ticketmaster but you know so thank god for that feature so anyways back in december i got a notification that carly ray jepsen and tough strike are both doing concerts in the month of february which was this month and i was like take my money i will be going to that because those two are among my top 10 artists for sure so I got tickets and I went to both of them over the course of two weeks and I have to say oh my god I have so much to say it was such a good experience. So with Tough Strike she is a Swedish pop artist well pop slash rock slash electronic as well and so she's much less popular than like Carly Rae Jepsen and also like other pop artists but her music is amazing, super underrated. I've been listening to her for years now. So hashtag fan behavior. But the show was such a good time. And the reason why is because is because the venue was super intimate. So it was at Lafayette in Granary Square in London for any of the London listeners. Uh, it's basically right outside of Central St. Martin's. And just this like place where artists like who aren't that big, like won't sell out stadiums and stuff usually perform. And yeah, so Toughstruck had her concert there and I was like, yay, nice, small, intimate venue. Uh, the stage was nice, not that big, but also the people were like, you know, just having a good time vibing. And it was so great because I pushed through and was like for in the front row but in the side so like a bit to the side. And she's a phenomenal performer with great stage presence and here's what I learned. Like she definitely noticed me because she like came over to the stage, like held my hand and stuff. And it was it was such a time. Like she's one of, you know, one of my favorite artists so it was it was great. But how to get noticed by an artist in a concert especially in a small venue is just it's simple. Like know the lyrics, belt it out. Like have a good time. Visibly look like you're having a good time, and they will be like, mm, "I like you. You're you're a true fan." And you know, I was just like singing and dancing the night away. It was really fun. And uh at the end of it, she came over to the merch area, and she was like, "Everyone, like come and say hi in the merch area." There was a bit of a meet and greet, and she was like. When it was my turn, I asked for pictures and everything. She was like, I love your energy, you know, I hope you had a good time. I was like, no, I love your music and typical fan behavior. But it was great. So know the lyrics and the artists might just notice you. So, so yeah, love that. And with the Carly Ray Jepson concert that I went after that one, which is the week after, to compare them like... I did prefer the more intimate venue because Carly's was in like, it was in, uh, it was somewhere in North London. It was just this really big venue. I think it was like an old theater or something like that. So it was a huge hall of like people. And it was like, was pretty, you know, pretty rowdy and like people, lots of, lots of fans. She's also a great performer, uh, but I don't know. I preferred the first concert a bit more but Carly was great, it was really nice singing like I really like you and then what else? Your Type, uh, Now That I find, Found You, like just a lot of her songs, but I did, I was like a bit bummed cause she didn't play a lot of the more like poppy stuff from her previous eras, which I get cause like her new album is more like chill and um, guitar uh, strings and stuff like that but I much preferred the more dancey pop princess kind of vibe that she'd been going for for the past couple of years but regardless it was a great time nice experience and overall like I feel like concerts are really fun because well you're just singing to songs that you enjoy and I feel like I'd rather spend on concerts than like clubbing or going drinking every weekend and stuff I just see it as way more worth it It it's just so much more fun but that's just me. To say though, hip hop concerts are really fun. Like rap, just a whole nother level of like energy. Because I went to Kendrick Lamar in November and it was so great. I was in the mosh pit though. That was probably why the experience was extra, extra fun. And it was at the O2 in London also. The one uh, near Cannery Wharf, the one just by it. And the reason why it was so great was because the stage was shaped in a way that more people could see the artist because it was like a long L shape instead of a big block. If that makes sense, like if you can visualize a long rectangular strip, like more people can see the artist because he paces back and forth. Whereas like just a rectangle in the front means only the people in the front and then everyone's organized to be like in rows. And so you get drowned out in the back a bit more the mosh pit was crazy though like I was not gonna lie I was you know I'm a short I'm a small petite girl like I was almost knocked off a couple of times but you know just stand firm to let people shove you with their elbows it was great though and Kendrick is kind of a short king too so like (laughs) not that that's related but it was it was fun concerts yeah I can't wait to go to more like rap concerts or hip-hop I think that'd be really fun gonna lie like resale value of a lot of concerts are just insane and the whole ticket master debacle with the taylor swift concerts and whatnot it's just it's just silly you know it's a shame that we have to pay so much to see artists but under this sort of system of capitalism that's the only way to uh allocate resources through price mechanisms you know aka who can pay more shall get the goods slash services. It's giving econ 101, but I digress. And speaking of capitalism, I recently finished the book Capitalist Realism by Mark Fisher. So this is quite a popular book on culture and basically this Social commentator slash philosopher Mark Fisher argues and analyzes how capitalism is a prevailing ideology of our times. But he calls it capitalist realism because what he means is that it's so deeply ingrained in our culture that it's so difficult to imagine alternatives to capitalism. And there's a very famous quote from the book that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. It's just an interesting thing piece to think about because he argues that this ideology has infiltrated not only the ways in which we organize our societies you know politics culture education but even our own senses of self and i like what it has to say about the intersection with mental health and psychological well-being because you know under this kind of system we're always constantly worried about losing our jobs or homes or status or you know our sense of insecurity and instability just is continuously created and everybody is living in an increasingly atomized and alienated state of society where we define ourselves in terms of our economic productivity mainly. A bit a bit uh a bit grim if you will but it's 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 real it's the truth and there's also Slavoj Žižek mentioned in the book one of my favorite philosophers and this really good quote I'm just going to read it out so from the book he says Mark Fisher says capitalist ideology in general Žižek maintains consists precisely in the overvaluing belief in the sense of inner subjective attitude at the expense of the beliefs we exhibit and externalize in our behavior. So long as we believe in our hearts that capitalism is bad, we are free to continue to participate in capitalist exchange. According to Zizek, capitalism in general relies on the structure of disavowal. We believe that money is only a meaningless value, Meaningless token of no intrinsic worth, yet we act as if it has a holy value. Moreover, this behavior precisely depends upon the prior disavowal. We are able to fetishize money in our actions only because we have ta- already taken an ironic distance towards money in our heads. Very interesting argument. I guess it's very ironic that a lot of people think that capitalism is bad, yet it's this endless cycle where you really just have to participate in the system. And as long as you have that belief in that it's bad, ultimately, we are still free to continue to participate. You should read the book. Whoever this is listening to it is a really great think piece. And on that note, I kind of have to say that I've always felt this growing up in that everything that I do or like it's very hard for us to do and pick up hobbies that are genuinely for ourselves what I mean is that everything that we do now can't be really for a true sense of enjoyment like we always feel like there's a way to capitalize it capitalize on it so you know say I'm learning to like knit or crochet I'm not actually doing it for fun I can I'd be thinking like you know maybe I should start a depop shop or like start selling some Freaking crochet bikini tops or something, you know what I mean? Or like painting. Like, I'm not doing it for the act of painting itself, but maybe I can sell my paintings. And this logic sort of permeates with every single thing that we do. Even with like content creation, the way everyone on social media just wants to be an influencer. But hate to break it to you, not everyone can be an influencer. Like, not everyone has what it takes. But the ways in which these social medias are structured makes people delusional and think that everyone's got what it takes because there's such a democratized or a democratization of creating content that in a way makes people think that they have what it takes to be the next viral person. And whether or not this is good or bad, I feel we can only judge in hindsight when we have more time, to look back at our, at our belief systems and our actions and the way in which we operate in this society with social media and our increased obsession with it. But it's just something to think about. Like it's, I've always been very sort of uh, ironic about my use of social media because I can see that this is definitely going to be judged by future generations, but so be it. Also, you can watch The Social Dilemma on Netflix. It's a good documentary, basically a bunch of people who created and popularized and built these big social medias and what they have to say about it. In fact, they're like, you know, we created a monster, we don't know what we made and things like that. I would definitely be talking about social media and its effects on culture and society more. But just on that note was a little link to the book that I just read. Way As long as we're aware of the ways in which we interact with these social media is like you'll be fine just don't make it your entire personality or let it really get to you if you're simply like hate watching something maybe unfollow unsubscribe if you know it's a waste of your time then don't consume it you know because we forget that our brains are so fragile they're so malleable to whatever sensory information we digest and consume like at the end of the day guys we are quite literally animals like we're primates we're monkeys and I read somewhere I wish I could pull up the source but for now source is source trust me bro but basically they said something like the rapid evolution of technology that we have as in you know our digital spheres our technologies our research our development is evolving in a pace so much faster than our bodies can keep up with like genetically we're still centuries years old because in the in the timeline of evolution we're but a blip right our current society and so our brains have not adapted but we're making them adapt that's why we fall so prey to these addictive modes of media social media and whatnot simply because biologically we've not evolved to adapt and to make changes so that's another thing to think about but anyways now i'm going to be reading the first listener submission i'm so excited for this one so basically i have an email or this podcast as an email uh, Liminalspace at gmail.com that's podcastliminalspace at gmail.com where you can submit your stories personal or of other people it's going to be anonymous so no one's going to know who it is and somebody submitted a story so I'm going to read it out well a personal a personal event and I'm just going to read it out and say my takes so this one's actually about their experience with a polyamorous relationship So I'm gonna read it out right now okay so begin okay so I lemon so this person's calling themselves lemon was in a poly relationship with a girl cherry and a boy orange (laughs) this is so funny like not the fruits fruity okay continue so lemon is the main character girl is cherry and the boy's orange so this person says it started back in August last year when I developed a crush on Cherry, mind you that we've been friends for a while, and I know of her past relationships and how bad it was. At the time, I was also getting over a year-long relationship that was still a bit scarring, so I just thought my, in my dumb brain we were perfect. We both had horrible relationship experience. It should go well, right? Wrong. So I thought her. So I told her about my crush on her, and we we got together in September. Here's the kicker. First day, she reciprocated my feelings. She dropped a bomb on me saying, Hey, you know, I've liked Orange for two months, right? I did, but I had no idea why she dropped that on me. Spoiler, I should have taken it as a sign. Orange is our mutual friend. I'm actually closer with him than I am with Cherry. It was a bit rough at the time because Cherry had kind of like a weird unrequited love situation thing with him. I don't know. I didn't want to mess with that. But obviously, because I'm telling you the story, the mess unraveled itself i didn't take her past crush with orange seriously at all i'm not that kind of person however it was the way she acted towards him towards him even though we already got together that irked me i started to notice how very little time she spent with me and instead opted to spend hours calling him instead i kept brushing it off as like oh they're really close friends so it makes sense i've told her that i wanted to spend time with her more but it was a bit difficult because she was constantly with him instead she was definitely the type of to listen in on a problem apologizes but never really fixes it. But here's the kicker. Orange upon finding out about her relationship was mad. I noticed he acted cold towards me whenever we talked. We didn't he he didn't really answer. I got worried, of course, he's my friend. I didn't want to hurt his feelings, but this part is where I really should have just booked it. Honestly, I had no idea if this is due to jealousy or any other feelings adjacent to that, but he ended up dating another person, Peach. And that drove cherry up the wall dude she was so upset that i couldn't even talk to her and when i did all she talked about was how orange got with peach was i worried about our relationship i mean sure but i knew that this was something different i knew she had bpd and that orange was her favorite person besides me it wasn't her getting upset over orange that worried me no it was the fact that when i asked her do you still like him her answer was i don't know And now you know why I should have taken this as a sign. I was thinking of booking it honestly because I personally don't think I could be in more situations like this. Then I found out that Orange getting with Peach was an impulse decision and that he didn't really want to get with them in the first place. They broke up after like a week and that's when he got closer to both me and Cherry. There were moments I joked to Cherry about how because of all this we might as well date Orange too and it And it stopped being a joke. I'll have to underline that this three-way started because of me, so it wasn't her idea. I thought that because she likes him too, it made sense, and I'm a pretty adventurous person, so why not? It didn't take long for me to find an answer. I'd start to notice her talking to him a lot more, posting stuff about him, calling him privately instead of with me. It was something albeit and made me upset. I was willing to talk it out with her. Again, it was a case of her listening, but not doing anything with it. It got to a point I felt like it was all in my head, like I was pushed to believing it was just my nasty thoughts when it happened right before my eyes. We got into a lot of arguments after that, me and Cherry, not so much arguments, more like problems. What irked me was whenever she had problems, she'd come to me and leave all the lovey-dovey stuff with him. When she had problems with him, she came to me, and I was so pissed at that point because the dynamic was getting clearer every day. Not to say we didn't have good moments together, of course we did, but the problem still loomed over. We barely talk privately now, and if I wanted to call, she'd always do it in the group so Orange could join too. It got awkward basically, but when I brought it up to Orange, he said he felt fine and that things were relatively normal between him and Cherry. That's when I knew I had to get out of here, and I did, so I quit. I told them explicitly I couldn't do it anymore and just walked away. I told Orange I did it because it felt like I was obviously excluded and unwanted, Basically, I stood up for myself and packed my shit. When I talked to Sherry, apparently leaving was a slap in the face to her, and that she tried her best to pay more attention to me, which honestly was not true at all. And at that point, I didn't care. I just want I just want to point out that this isn't like a solid proof that polyamorous relationships don't work. This was just my experience. I'm sure it works for others. Anyways, love your podcast, moi. Thank you, listener, for the submission. Okay, interesting story to be honest, I am not 100% aware of um, (laughs) the dynamics of a poly relationship. You know, polyamorous, I'm gonna call it poly. Poly relationship, like what are the rules? Like what I know of polyamory is that you have like a main person, right? So let's say I have like a main boyfriend and then all the other people are like side people, like girls or guys that I'm also seeing are like the side pieces and vice versa. But um, I feel like it might work if um, you kind of established at the start that you and your main partner are the main partners. <laughs> oh my God, I'm so sorry. I. I don't know how, how this works. Okay, I don't know how this works. But I think, okay, so if you establish that you two are like the mains and everyone's like a side piece. So most of the emotional, you know, emotional um, connection, the emotional talks and the true deep feelings are between each other and everyone else is just kind of for fun. Maybe that'll work. But also it's just such an interesting concept. Like, me personally, I don't think I could... No, like, open relationships would actually kill me. Like, I'd be, like, so jealous. Like, no. Like, no. But I don't know. I don't know. Like, enlighten me, poly community. Like, what's what's good? Like, what's... How, how do you manage this? But about the story, about the situation, right? With um Cherry... So Lemon, the main character, the listener. Cherry and Orange, the boy. I think I think a Cherry and Orange maybe they like always had a thing but they were never brave enough to uh make it official I don't know it seems like Cherry did like Lemon you know the main character but she's not ready to be in a sort of like one-on-one committed relationship and a three-way is very interesting but if you I don't think poly relationships would work if you even have like a shred of jealousy or sense of wanting to possess your partner, which is completely normal, by the way. I'm not, I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. I'm saying that it's the orthodox way of going about a relationship. That's why most people are monogamous traditionally and whatnot. It's just like, if you can't even stand the idea of your partner offloading any sort of emotional burden that they have to someone else that isn't you like I don't think that it would even work you know like you have to have this understanding that if your relationship is open or at least this is my take on it like if you bring in many different other characters into this you know emotions and romance that I think the human brain has a tendency to compartmentalize as in They'd come to you for certain things, but this other person for something else. And if you do that in the context of romance, it opens up to so much more jealousy because then if you're, you know, still traditionally monogamous or have those monogamous thoughts, because it'd be like your partner in the monogamous sense is like also your best friend, also your funniest friend, also the person you come to to talk about your emotions so your therapist, so like all these roles and these and these voids that your partner is supposed to fill, and it's supposed to be one person. But if you spread it apart among many different people in terms of a polyamorous relationship, that's just gonna be difficult if you can't take that. Like if you can't stand the idea of your partner not coming to you. And plus, what boundaries are there? Like, how do you separate which sections of life slash emotions? your partner will come to you for as opposed to someone else maybe like oh what is this like called like maybe a hierarchical polyamory you know what I don't know I am not I'm not a professional in the polyamorous community not judging be free to do what you want maybe I need to do my research on what this is about but my point stands I think in order to really accept the terms of a polyamorous relationship, what has to happen in order for that to happen is to, or to happen successfully is to understand that your partner will go to other people for other uh, situations or other sort of uh, advice and they're not gonna come to you only and you're gonna have to be okay with that. Me personally, not sure how that'll work, but interesting. Interesting story, Lemon. Thank you. But ultimately, I have a lot of respect to the submitter of the story for walking away from something that doesn't work for them. Like, you know, if a situation just makes you feel unhappy or that you just have this gut feeling that you're being betrayed or that you feel like this isn't the situation for you and you can walk away from it, it takes strength and courage to do that because most people are more comfortable with what they've already got. And it's very hard for a lot of people to walk away from various situations just because it's not comforting to start something new. But props to you, Lemon, for being able to do that. Proud of you. Thank you for submitting your story. And I feel like on the note of preserving your peace or finding happiness or walking away from things that don't make you happy anymore, it, and and the whole capitalism thing that I was talking about earlier, I've come to realize that life really is in the smallest moments. Not to sound cheesy, but I'm going to elaborate. What I mean is that we move in ways that are like, oh, what am I going to do in three months, this big project that I'm going to work on, or I'm going to move to this country and start something new, or just big things that we plan for. It's interesting how human beings plan big things ahead for themselves, but how we truly remember what happens to us in life is in the small moments. Like life truly is in the smallest moments. Like when I was living in, let's say New Zealand, where I was, it felt like a fever dream because it was only like not even two years of my life. But the things that I remember most from that was the smallest things like me walking up the hill and the way like the ground felt against my Mary Jane shoes that somehow the school mandated us to wear and like they had this ridiculous uniform like not ridiculous it was really pretty it was like a blouse and a kilt and like stockings and a cardigan and I survived through winter just with that I digress (laughs) that was a little bit of a tangent but what I mean is like it's moments like that that I remember or the way that the sun set or the way that I made my coffee or back when I was at home in Indonesia I remember the moments where like my friend lost a certain way or the way that my parents uh walked around and Went about their daily business. Like, it's little things like that that you remember and the little moments. So, really hold on to them. Like, the poets were right when they said, hold on to the smallest moments because that's how you'll remember your life the tiniest memories and not the great grand gestures and the big things and the big ways that you move about your life. Just to be a little philosophical and whatnot. But it's also very important to remain grateful with your life and to just wake up thanking you know the universe or God or whatever you believe in that you're just you know you're healthy, you woke up and you're and you're good or you're happy, something, something to hold on to because it makes you it makes you happier, happier person so today's episode's been a bit philosophical and thinking about life a little pondering about how we react to adaptive technologies or enjoying the little moments and the listener submission and on that note i will end today's episode i'll see you all in two weeks and have have a good night, a good day, wherever you are, what time zone you are in. Uh, thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed. it. I'll see you very soon. Bye.